lie that poetry tells Is constant as the truth itself Without the lies and the false beliefs Where would we be? Where would we be? Welcome to the State of the Theory podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm in India. And we are your theory doctors. Welcome back. We have an announcement to make. We have big news, which you probably have heard already, or at least heard the effects of. You're noticing it now. We hope you're noticing it now, otherwise there's been a lot of effort gone for nothing. <laughs> so we are very grateful to the University of St. Andrews for some very generous support through their knowledge exchange and public engagement uh, impact award scheme. They've given us... Uh, quite a bit of money, a very generous grant, uh, which has allowed us to buy new equipment. Yay! Ta-da! So we are hoping that we are now easier to hear. We are hoping that we are now more pleasant to hear. Yes. We also have capabilities for interviewing people remotely, um, for editing... With greater complexity. Yes. Um, as always, though, the limiting point here is my skill, which, unfortunately, the St. Andrews University grant has done nothing to improve. <laughs> there was no training involved here. There was no training involved. <laughs> but, yes, we are we are learning. Uh, bear with us in this episode. This is the first episode we are recording uh, using our brand new equipment. Uh, there might be one or two episodes that we have recorded before that we are banking and will release in future weeks. But uh, mostly from now on, you should be able to hear us using this new equipment. Without feedback. Well, can't promise that yet. <laughs> so what are we talking about? What are we talking about today? We have another cheery topic. The world is full of cheery topics at the moment. It's it not is. our fault. I know um, we're yes. on the on the cusp of a new dawn, a new horizon, a beautiful world. Yes, um, dawn suggests that something better is coming. I'm not sure anything much is coming. <laughs> we might be at the at the cusp of a new dusk, new evening, new evening. Yeah, today we are talking about Kashmir. Uh, if you have been living under a rock or have have been really distracted by um, news in your own country. We've got some background information for you. We hope you'll find it interesting and useful, um, possibly alarming. Yes. So the reason why this uh, is in the news now is on the 5th of August, the Indian government uh, withdrew uh, a piece of constitutional law, uh, uh, an article of the constitution, which is known as article 370, which uh, grants Kashmir some special uh, status. It grants Kashmir, uh, Jammu and Kashmir, which is a state of India. Uh, India is a union, uh, but it has states not dissimilar to the states in the United States, except India isn't a federation. Uh, So the states have some power, but much more limited powers compared to the states within the United States. Within that setup, Jammu and Kashmir have powers that other states do not. Uh, This article in the Constitution was written 
in recognition of um the the contested position that Jammu and Kashmir has uh and it was designed to allow the constituent assembly uh, the legislative body uh in Jammu and Kashmir to decide whether or not to stay in India to decide on what terms it would stay in India and so on and so forth so uh the indian government who as if you've been listening to our previous episodes you will know that we are not particular fans of uh have just withdrawn all of that special status they have taken away statehood from jammu and kashmir to turn it into what's called union territory so it's much closer more direct rule from the central central government in new delhi and uh much less if any uh local state level democracy at all uh this was in the advance of this decision india dramatically increased uh military presence in the state kashmir was already one of the most heavily militarized areas in the in the world uh india withdrew access to the internet uh phone lines there's pretty much and has been for almost a month now uh a generally speaking a, a media blackout uh communications blackout so uh my social media is full of people who are from kashmir but who don't live in kashmir at the moment and who are talking about how they haven't been able to contact their family for 20 days 25 days 26 days now um so the government has this sort of heavily contradictory position because on the one hand it is insisting that what is happening is for the benefit of kashmir that all of the things that have been, all of the proposals that have been put in place uh are for the benefit of kashmiris and that kashmir and kashmiris are going to welcome this with open arms but on the same on the, uh, at the same time they are uh re- refusing kashmiris access to anything approaching a global media uh because of course they know that were kashmiris able to speak out uh they would not be particularly complimentary about about the uh about the new legal situation and on top of all of this uh there remains there has been for some time now and continues to be and at the moment a particularly acute increase in extrajudicial killings police brutality uh torture by 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 both the both the police authorities and the military authorities um we can add links to this lots of global media uh channels have been reporting this bbc at the moment are reporting uh, an increase in torture uh all of which is either deliberately or because of the situation not generally being reported within india because uh indian media access to kashmir is is even more controlled this isn't a new issue though is it no it isn't um it i mean the the withdrawal of article 370 is a new issue yeah uh but it's it is only uh complicating a problem that has been that has existed for the last 70 two years now yes and kashmir before independence was not neatly included in either the british or the french empires in india either um we tend to to brush very broadly when we talk about empire in india the episodes where where we have discussed 
partition or um, the British Empire, and we talk about kind of colonialism and colonial practice. But one of the interesting things about the empire, of course, was that it wasn't even remotely as cohesive and coherent as we make it sound. Um, it was pretty diffuse. Um, it was always under threat, and it was always being challenged and, and forced to re-examine and renegotiate. And Kashmir was never fully included in it. Um, Kashmir was, was a princely state. There were a series of regions in the subcontinent that never fully managed... Um, or that the British or the French never fully managed to incorporate into their empires. Uh, Kashmir was one of a number of them. Um, and then at at the time of independence and at the time of partition, a, a few of the princely states uh, became really important. They became key to the imagining of the new nation states of India and Pakistan. Uh, not to interrupt, but uh, you use the phrase nation state. Uh, I think we've had a listener response about the use of the word nation state we have shout out to uh my friend stephen kroll uh stephen yesterday asked me to define the term nation state which i did for him uh but i will do for other listeners we talk about nation state a lot we use it to distinguish between nation state government and country nation state is a particular form of political organization um, and we use it to be specific a state is generally a sort of government apparatus that has a set of institutions that kind of monitors or intervenes in an economy um, and that is identified as being the sort of arbiter or administrative body that oversees a particular population um, and is sort of attached to a region or a, a kind of unit of territory. Um, but it isn't connected necessarily to what we call a nation. And a nation um, is a kind of cultural, um, social, political organization that links up its members via certain categories of identity. Um, sometimes it's ethnicity and race, sometimes it's language. Um, the kind of the original theory of the nation was was written by a guy named Benedict Anderson. Um, he's an anthropologist in the United States, and he says that language is the kind of key that that European nation states begin to use to kind of consolidate their control. So French, of course, which had many different dialects and was very different between the North and the South and the East and the West, coheres around a sort of standardized French that comes out of Paris. And um, so the nation state is a state, a government, and a kind of series and set of institutions that oversee a territory that is linked to a particular nation. Um, and And when we talk about the transition from empire to a post-colonial independent uh, world, we are in many ways, in many cases, talking about the arrival of new nation states. Um, one of the really powerful ways that colonized peoples were able to um, identify and construct opposition to an empire was to say, actually, no, the state shouldn't be organized around a European center that administers territories that are, you know, hundreds of thousands of miles away from where they are and, you know, that you should administer the territory on which you live um, and that we as a coherent uh, singular group of people who share this identity should be able to manage our own affairs via our own state. So the nation state is that linking up of those two things. Yeah, and it's, so it's a hyphenated word and to my mind the hyphen 
refers to the fact that not all states are necessarily nations and not all nations are states mm-hmm. and of course these these definitions are political and contextual so people won't necessarily agree uh with with the definition but you could make a case for example that the united kingdom is a state but it is not a nation it is made up of four different nations yes five uh, if you include yorkshire yes five if you include yorkshire uh similarly if you think of something like palestine if you think of something like kurdistan these are arguably nations but not necessarily states uh when you have uh an entity that is both uh that both has the bureaucratic institutional power of a state and the cultural power of a nation we describe it as a nation state yes uh that was a digression i interrupted you i'm sorry that's all right me? india and pakistan though uh are really interesting examples of how a a group of diverse nationalists got together and devised nation states imagined new nation states um they're both quite powerful nation states um india is kind of seen as being the the more kind of economically powerful um and pakistan has sometimes in kind of certain writings has you know kind of been written off but actually pakistan is a a medium income country it has a massive military it has a, a huge piece of territory um it's it's a very large democracy and sometimes its democracy is put on hold um but when we talk about it's a nuclear power as well um so you know we're talking about a region kashmir and jammu sit jammu and kashmir sit right in in the middle um and the trajectory by which kashmir comes to its current position um is extremely contentious of course we will have to take a position in order to tell the story here um know that that position is contested um and is rooted in our reading of the archive um and our sort of positions but um we'll do our best to make it as accurate as possible in 1947 when the subcontinent was partitioned by the the british government the the issue of kashmir was on the table to a certain extent it was um it was always sort of known that it was going to be kind of a question however because it was a princely state kashmir wasn't up for partition it wasn't included in a boundary commission because it wasn't british jurisdiction it was its own technically independent princely state and the agreement that had been reached with the british government between the princely states and the british government was that the princely states would decide which which new nation state they would join um kashmir is a strange one because it is in the border region some of the others are not in most of the others aren't in border region so um like hyderabad for example is in the middle of india so it goes to india um despite the fact that um its ruler is a muslim uh but it goes to india because it would be a little bit weird in this this kind of new era of contiguous territorial nation states contiguous meaning um all of the territory within the new nation state is is singular you don't have weird little islands of or like pockets of one country sitting in another right that's the idea um whereas kashmir is on the border and where kashmir goes could potentially be contiguous on either side right and the punjab boundary commission had a very small 
piece of potential border at play here that includes Kashmir. And there's one small piece of a district in the Punjab that links up what will become India with Kashmir. And if that piece of border is included in the new nation state of Pakistan, contiguity is clear. Contiguity shows that Kashmir should go to Pakistan. But if that little piece of border goes to India, it means that India has a claim to territorial contiguity. It means that they could claim Kashmir without creating a sort of weird island. It's called an enclave in geographical terms. The issue of contiguity becomes totally irrelevant when you scale back and you look at partition as a whole, because, of course, what was being created were two wings of Pakistan. East Pakistan and West Pakistan are not connected in any way. They are completely separate, non-contiguous units of territory that were included in a single nation state. And, of course, we've seen the legacy of that. East Pakistan becomes Bangladesh in 1972, after a civil war in 1971. So... Kashmir sits at the heart of the conundrum of partition and it sits at the heart of the geographical impossibility of a, of a partition that happens in reality, in actual space and time. Because until 1947, partition is an idea and it's a, a kind of a, a geographical cop-out in, in some senses to deal with the fact that there are competing ideas of what the independence of continent should look like. Until partition happens, of course, territory is is completely contiguous and it's kind of a, a single diffuse unit. In the end, the district at stake goes to India. Um, it doesn't go to Pakistan. In kind of standard geographical practice and boundary making, a lot of kind of external observers, people who didn't really have any skin in the game, tend to say that actually that that border probably should have been included in Pakistan for geographical reasons. But of course, geography is an imperial colonial discipline and didn't have the tools to deal with the complexity of what was going on anyway. Um, what did happen was um, a river was sort of split in half. Um, and the water management side of the river where the, the canal sort of began and the administration of the the kind of water and access to the water went to India and the rest of the rivers went to Pakistan. So it opens up a whole new issue in terms of water and conflict around water and treaties around water, um, which isn't really a topic for today, but it just demonstrates the kind of legacy of partition in, in this part of the world. And, and it makes Kashmir an intractable problem. It is a problem, I think, without a geographical solution. Yes, and it also speaks to the fact that Part of the problem that Kashmir is and has remained for both India and Pakistan is the twin problem of A, what Kashmir means to the in Indian imaginary and the, and the Pakistani imaginary. In other words, what the nation states that are India and Pakistan imagine Kashmir to be and what they imagine that Kashmir could be for them as it were, what Kashmir could mean for Pakistan and what Kashmir could mean for India. Of course, there is no space in this imagination for what Kashmir might mean to Kashmiris, yeah. but that's a separate point we'll come to in a second. So the the Kashmir problem, if you like, on the one hand is about precisely this imagination of, of you know, the, the there are phrases uh, 
that are current in India that describe Kashmir as a paradise on earth or a heaven on earth. Kashmir is Kashmir is often exoticized and fetishized by India in a way that never really questions India's ownership of of Kashmir. Uh Kashmir becomes the the crown in India's jewel if you like. Uh but on the other hand and absolutely uh bound up with this sense of imagination is Kashmir as a resource is it's the one of the most beautiful parts of the world uh if you are able to own it in terms of tourism in terms of strategic importance both in terms of land and water it it is worth a lot of money you know the 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 financial value that you can put on the land independent of what its people might want to happen is significant enough that there is a there is a huge economic imperative to ensure that kashmir continues to be part of india or becomes part of pakistan or however you want to define it yes if you haven't seen a map of the subcontinent lately uh kashmir is in the northern region of india in um the kind of pakistan's kind of at a diagonal the kind of what is it like the north not quite the northwest because it's not as far north it's as sort of the point border. where india pakistan and china meet right yeah. like that that that's the yeah in kashmir borders it has borders in india it has borders in pakistan and it has borders on china and so the chinese government as well has has securitized their border um and the indian government has securitized its border with china here so there's a border issue there's a security issue it's one of the most militarized borders in the world um there are landmines there are floodlights there's you know immense surveillance that happens on the border it's not a place that tourists go and of course if india can secure kashmir to the point where it is a safe place to be marketed to white tourists there's a lot of money to be made um and and as yet it has kashmir has been unable to create itself in this way as a kind yeah. of tourist destination and uh the rhetoric that has accompanied the withdrawal of article 370 from kashmir uh has been marked by that unholy compa- sort of uh alignment of a particular i would argue fascist hindu nationalism which imagines a kashmir de- devoid of muslims a, a hindu kashmir to match the hindu india that's actually something we haven't we haven't actually discussed the population of kashmir technically in 1947 the population of kashmir was majority muslim so it was assumed by the british government that the um that the the princely prince in kashmir would give kashmir to pakistan based on population except the prince was hindu except the prince was hindu and there is was is a significant hindu minority exactly. in kashmir especially in jammu uh the the specter if you like that is used constantly by by the hindu right in all of its discourse is that of the kashmiri pandits yes uh, a hindu community who at various points in the history of kashmir have been expelled have been tortured but none of which can really justify the the role that the indian government is playing in jammu and kashmir today 
Yes. And there's also um, a, a, a kind of minority of Kashmiris, but, but a really interesting movement within Kashmir that, that imagines Kashmir as being independent. Um, that that Kashmiri identity has been formed and you know forged out of its history in the last seventy years, um, and there's always been a, a there have always been distinctive regional identities and and religious identities in the various parts of India that has made it very difficult for India and Pakistan and Bangladesh to kind of create the nation. Yeah. Um, but because of the per, the unique position of Kashmir, Kashmiri identity has developed into a very complex quite interesting kind of set of identities and negotiations that have responded to some of the violence the state violence um and some of the the guerrilla warfare that has taken place in kashmir so at the the position at the moment and i guess this is where where we are bringing our our analysis to the situation is what interests me and troubles me and embarrasses me as someone who often identifies as Indian, uh, the combination of Hindu nationalism, uh, a hideous, violent, racist misogyny, and an aggressive capitalism. And I'll explain what I mean. So I said earlier that a, a, a lot of the rhetoric that is surrounding the withdrawal of Article 370 has been marked by this uh vision of a Hindu Kashmir for a Hindu India. Uh, the other thing it's been marked by is they've been elected representatives, ministers, chief ministers, uh, government officials, elected government officials who are on record talking about how the withdrawal of Article 370 means Hindu men, Hindu Indian men can go and marry, quote, fair-skinned Kashmiri women. Um, so much to unpack there and again it's part of this Hindu imagination that uh, that sees Kashmir and its people as a, a place and a people that they own and therefore they can now go and build hotels or build houses there which they couldn't before and they can go and marry quote fair-skinned Kashmiri girls um and those two are seen as the same thing. Uh, the women and the land are seen as resources to be exploited. And even exploitation isn't the right word here because in the imaginary, they're not resource that, resources that you exploit. If you own them anyway, then you're not really exploiting them. They're yours to do with as you please. And it is that, that sense of ownership that is really noticeable in the in the discourse surrounding surrounding the way the Indian government is acting. Uh, of course, the Indian government, uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi particularly, and the party has been bankrolled to a large extent by massive multi-billionaires in India, all of whom are now looking at Kashmir as a place for development, where you can build houses, you can, you can build hotels, uh, none of which they would have been able to do when Kashmir still had a special status. And part of the rhetoric supporting the withdrawal of special status plugs into a particularly pernicious argument about development. Because if we can demonstrate that this is going to help development in the state, then that, ha- that has to be a good thing. Uh, it is also what Modi did, did in Gujarat when he was chief minister of Gujarat. 
the the 2002 communal riots in Gujarat which weren't really riots but state orchestrated violence uh didn't matter because Modi was able to demonstrate a a development model which catapulted him into into uh prime ministership and the central government the fact that though that model of development is at best arguable again doesn't matter because it is again this imagination of that that reconstructs india as a space of development which in within which upper caste hindus are able to claim their rightful place at the top of the table and everybody else knows their knows their place there's so much to unpack there can you go back a little bit just to explain for people who might um might be less familiar uh with south asian culture and society the fair skinned kashmiri girls so india still has a premium on fairness as opposed to darkness in terms of skin color you still have massive uh pharmaceutical companies cosmetic companies selling fairness creams creams skin products that claim to make your skin fairer uh there is a stereotype that the further north you go the fairer people are uh and kashmir the the stereotypical look you can't see me making scare quotes but i'm making scare quotes of of kashmiris is that they're fair skinned and they f- that becomes part of the fetishized uh n- position that they occupy within the hindu indian imaginary uh the beauty of kashmir becomes part uh, becomes part and parcel with the beauty of the people the beauty of the land all of it becomes something that you can own and cl- claim for yourself in a way that is extremely colonial yes you know it's 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 it the the relationship between india and kashmir is sort of textbook colonialism uh you always think that sort of india's learned well it's learned from the best in terms of how to exert its colonial uh power the other context here is the it is not just that the idol idealization and fetishization of the fair skinned kashmiri girl it's it's not just that it's part of the colonial indian imaginary but of course it is it is also that it is it 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 gets plugged into a rhetoric that helps to undo what hindu india sees as the biggest threat to its existence which is muslim india and the concept i'm thinking particularly is that of love jihad so uh, there is a particular paranoia within the the hindu imaginary um and i should by hindu imaginary i don't i'm not necessarily saying that every hindu thinks this it's just this is the the vision of india that is a hindu vision of india uh the hindu imaginary is convinced that muslims are out to take over and muslim men are deliberately seducing hindu women in an in an act called love jihad to produce muslim children increase the muslim population of india and take over uh so the attraction towards the fair skinned kashmiri girl is a reverse of the love jihad because the fair skinned kashmiri girl is of course muslim mm-hmm. um so that that reverses the the process of love jihad uh some of the most acute analysis i've read about this uh comes from uh an academic political scientist called dibesh anand 
who has written very well on on Hindu nationalism and part of his thesis is that Hindu nationalism is what he describes as porno nationalism uh because the the Hindu imagine the Hindu imagination about muslim men and women is what what he argues pornographic because the the central threat that islam and muslim people represent for the hindu imaginary is is a sexual threat so the hindu imaginary can't but see the indian muslim and the pakistani muslim for that matter in pornographic terms so all of this gets plugged into the way in which india thinks about kashmir the way in which india talks about kashmir and the way in which india treats kashmir yeah it seems like this is a i mean it is as you say textbook colonialism um a sort of a a mechanism by which the indian government can write a story that says we are turning what was you know foreign muslim soil foreign muslim women into what was the other we're deothering them and through violence and control and mechanisms of control and order we are deothering them and and incorporating them into us and we are doing this for your benefit yeah that's the key thing that india is doing all of this for the benefit of kashmir and kashmiris even if they might resist now even if they don't see it now will ultimately recognize that this is better for them and i've even heard you really really could not make this up i've heard people say that because of the removal of special status india is now in a position where they can better help development in kashmir including building more tra- trains and railway lines wow yeah and it's just like you as i say you really could not make this up the the cyclicality with which our colonialism works the arguments just repeat themselves exactly um so so kashmir sh- needs to be grateful to india for its railways yeah and it is similar to it's it's a different context but there are echoes of and and a lot of our listeners will immediately think of echoes to um the control sexual control of slaves on plantations the splitting up of slave families so that um enslaved men wouldn't be able to use um you know inhuman alien beast like sexual prowess in order to take control of the plantation um and the the rape of enslaved women in order to um diminish a sort of bestial sexual power of um black bodies you know it's it's very similar similar as well to um the bringing of indigenous children on to uh mission schools both in the United States um and in Australia for example among other places um you know this is it's colonialism 101 yeah you know how more and more you you find things that are at once shocking and not surprising yep it is the the way in which India has internalized exactly the same kind of arguments that were being made about it 200 years ago um in order to now justify its own occupation um the the way in which the military occupation and and you know I I am calling it a military occupation 
deliberately. Uh, it's it's uh, I'm, I'm using the word word consciously. Is is taking the same form that the British occupation in in India was taking. So, local leaders, elected leaders, political leaders are are under house arrest. Uh, there is a ban on communication. You know, adjusting for period and changing technologies. The way in which people's lives are being controlled is is exactly the same. Um, people who are speaking out are being are being detained or being forced to leave Kashmir. Political leaders f- who are opposition leaders from other parts of India, well, I shouldn't really say other parts of India, from India, are being um, not allowed to enter Kashmir. So you have this again a very colonial thing, which is. The, the while the rhetoric is all about Kashmir being an integral part of India, that is that statement is what is what is justifying everything that Kashmir is an integral part of India. Except, of course, one after another, all the military legal uh, measures that are being uh, put in place are there to other Kashmir, because it is precisely not an integral part of India. Yeah, there's a recognition that it actually isn't. Yeah. And the very existence of Kashmir as a, a region that isn't an integral part of India undermines the power of the Indian state, yes. specifically the Indian nation state, and means that it needs to be, there needs to be an intervention somehow. It needs to be acted upon because as long as that vulnerability exists, the Indian nation state is always at risk, and and the the Hindu imaginary might think of Kashmir as an integral part of India, but it has never ever thought of Kashmiris as an integral part of India, and that separation where you can where you can claim ownership of the land and everything that it means without ever having to consider the people as part of your body politic, um, is another classic example of colonialism and we see other examples of that you know we won't necessarily have time to go into these examples today but if you think of the way brazil treats the amazon forest and the and the indigenous communities who live in the amazon forest as as where the land and every all the resources that are part of the land are exploitable uh, but the people don't have to be accounted for uh, if you think of the way in which Denmark on the one hand and Donald Trump on the other can talk about whether Greenland is for sale or not for sale. And the resources that that Greenland represents, the strategic importance that Greenland represents as a piece of land um, can be talked about as a product, as a commodity, without having to account for the people who live there in the way that I might choose to sell you my home. Uh, because my home is mine to sell, you can choose to buy my home, and then my home becomes yours. It's it's as if that model is taken and taken to the macro level of nations, and you know Trump thinks that Greenland buying Greenland is no different from buying a golf course in Scotland, because it's a real estate deal for him. Yeah, and that territory is reduced to. A commodity, which of course it it can't be because territory is wrapped up in the concept of sovereignty. And sovereignty doesn't just mean ownership of a commodity. It also means 
the management of a political system of a society and of an economy. And as much as a kind of neoliberal capitalist state attempts to turn its territory into a commodity, it can't fully do that because in order to do that, it needs to deal with the problem of individuals and families and society um, because people are very difficult to fully commodify. In fact, that's Marx's statement is that it is impossible to fully commodify people, individuals, or kind of society as a unit of measure. Yeah, um, but there is a distinction, isn't there, in, in terms of the way India, Modi particularly, let's say, the way, the way Modi thinks of Kashmir and the way Trump thinks of Greenland isn't quite the same. No. What's the difference, do you think? Well, Trump doesn't really know what he's doing. Um, and you said before we started recording that Modi is is more terrifying because he knows what he's doing and he's, for all intents and purposes, he is good. I'm doing scare quotes yeah. here. He is good at his job, which is to be a Hindu nationalist prime minister of India. And he does that job more effectively than Donald Trump. You know, I would say, considering what Modi's trying to do in Kashmir, he's having more success yes. than Trump had yes. when he said he'd like to buy Greenland. Yes. He genuinely wanted to buy it because he believed that he could. Yes. But that, you know, that isn't how it works. Yeah. Modi's approach to Kashmir is perhaps similar to Denmark's approach to Greenland, even though it's much more benign and much less militarized. In other words... Trump's buying of Greenland isn't textbook colonialism because Trump doesn't understand sovereignty. He doesn't understand territoriality. Um, Modi does. Denmark does. So Modi can exploit a national imaginary that has come before him and will last after he's gone. That, that imagines Kashmir to be unquestionably, unproblematically a part of India, that the borders of India are seen to be settled and natural, perhaps, maybe even divinely ordained. Um, and within that imaginary, Modi can then exploit for himself and for his, for his supporters, both financial supporters and political supporters, uh, the space that is Kashmir, knowing that he doesn't have to demonstrate the Indianness of Kashmir, because his supporters have accepted that. His supporters don't question that Kashmir is part of India, has always been part of India, um, in the way that Trump doesn't quite understand for for Greenland. Yeah, and it it is interesting too because of course he also doesn't understand the relationship between Puerto Rico and the United States. Um, and I'm sure he doesn't understand the relationship between Guam or American Samoa and the United States, or for that matter, Washington, D.C. and the United States. And um, he doesn't understand the concept of an overseas territory, and he certainly doesn't understand the concept of a nation. So Greenland, Americans have, have no emotional connection to Greenland. They have no historical connection to Greenland in the way that a lot of Americans have a connection to Puerto Rico in some way. There's no you know, there's no colonial or kind of anti-colonial history at play here in the way that there is 
in Kashmir. And also, you know, if we're talking about natural resources and, and the Amazon rainforest, yeah. that territory belongs to the nation state that is overseeing the destruction of the environment and the kind of capitalist exploitation of the territory itself. And one of the ways that colonialism has worked, and certainly early colonialism worked, especially in Central and South America, was to use things like geographical surveys, maps, and territoriality and territorial sovereignty in order to undermine indigenous forms of environmental management. Because a lot of indigenous communities actively rejected European capitalist modes of owning and managing territory and thinking about land as something that could be owned by a single individual and used to generate profit in the form of capital. Um, and so in, and indigenous communities have spent many centuries devising ways to challenge European empires and then post-colonial nation states in order to make claims to territory that don't fall into a territorial trap. Um, it's really fascinating, a lot of the movements that indigenous communities have used. Um, and in this case, of course, there is the the degrading and rejecting of lots of complex treaties and negotiations that have been made in the past between indigenous communities in the rainforest and previous governments, previous organ previous organizations, which is quite similar to the way that Modi has changed the constitution in India in order to allow current events to unfold. Yeah, I, I, as you were saying that, I was just thinking, rem remembering that uh, photoshopped image that Trump tweeted of a Trump Tower in Greenland, which is fascinating to me because on a on a very superficial level, that matches pretty much exactly what Modi's bankrollers want to do. But the discourse surrounding the construction of a of an Indian made Indian owned hotel entertainment complex whatever in Kashmir is so different to Trump's image of plonking using Photoshop to plonk a Trump Tower on, on the beach in Greenland yeah because it isn't it isn't an American Tower it's a Trump Tower and American nationalism kind of US American nationalism is it doesn't have a long standing historically constructed conflation with it's, Trump. It's almost like Trump's Trump's use of Greenland is colonial in the way the East India Company was colonial. As opposed to the British state, the British nation state being colonial. Do you see what I mean? There's there's something yeah. similar going on there, I think. Yeah, except in the sense that that at least the British East India Company was successful. Like, I, yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. In the sense that that they, and certainly the Dutch East India Company yeah. before the British East yeah. India Company was really good at what it set out to do. Yeah, um, and the the economy that the East India Companies generated was massive. Yeah, they bankrolled the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. in Europe. I'm not really sure what Trump's business ventures have done no, for the American no, economy. No, nothing. Right? Yeah. Like they, yeah, yeah. they kind of haven't. So yeah. it's not even the same no. in the sense that he's just not 
That's good. He's just incompetent in every possible way. Yeah. The the phallic the the phallic image and the whiteness of Greenland though yeah. is also as a sort of because it's so far north because it's ice. It is a sort of like Caucasian dream, isn't yeah. it? It's yeah. like a it's really bizarre. Yeah. Also like where did it come from? <laughs> Why? Why? I think that's a good point to end most of our episodes. Why? <laughs> Why? Um, yeah, hope this is of interest. Let us know. Um, we don't often do this, but I will do this uh, today. Uh, there are a couple of hashtags that you can use on Twitter if you want to tweet in support of of uh, the uh, the situation in Kashmir. Uh, stand with Kashmir. Hashtag Stand with Kashmir. Hashtag End Kashmir Blockade. If you're listening in Scotland, there's going to be a solidarity demonstration outside the Scottish Parliament at three o'clock on Friday, the 6th of September. Uh, if you're not in Scotland, then try to see if there are solidarity movements uh, wherever you are. Um, let us know what you think of the episode um, and see you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Richaudhvi. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our show is on Facebook at State of the Theory Podcast and on Twitter at Theory Doctors. Our music is provided by the Agrarians and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you. Where would we be?